0: When people think of Hasidism or the Hasidic movement, they usually conjure up images of men in black hats and clothing and very strict religious practice. The sometimes called ultra Orthodox Jews are featured in Netflix series, in movies, etc., and are, as I said, associated with very strict and, and conservative, you could say, religious practices. What many people don't know is that the Hasidic movement is also a deeply mystical tradition, steeped in the tradition of Kabbalah and other forms of Jewish mysticism. This is a very broad topic and the Hasidic movement is of course a lot more complex than what I have described just now, Uh, but in this video we will be focusing on exploring the earliest developments and indeed origins of the Hasidic movement, its practices, its theological and metaphysical ideas, and what characterizes it, as well as discussing, of course, the founder, you could say, of this movement, who is one of the most fascinating figures in the history of Judaism. Shaman Peripatetic healer, soothsayer, heretic, Jewish holy man, these are all labels that have at one point or another been attached to Rabbi Israel ben Eliezer, also known as the Baal Shem Tov, or simply the Besht. The name Baal Shem Tov means master of the good name, and the title Baal Shem was given to certain people who used prayers, incantations, herbs, and other techniques that some might call magical or quasi-magical. Most people don't associate such notions to Jewish practice, but history and reality is of course more complex than that. And in this sense, the Besht was not all that unique. What was unique was how well he caught on with his community and the movement known as Hasidism, that he jump-started a movement that is still huge in the jewish world today and is even growing now hasidism today looks quite different from the hasidism of the 18th century when it originated and there are not many aspects of the vast literature of hasidic thought that are truly set in stone doctrines as with many other observant jewish communities debate and study feature prominently though in its earliest stages not as prominently as the surrounding community So to outline just one fixed form of quote-unquote Hasidism would give us a very narrow view, which doesn't really correspond to, well, reality. Also, each Hasidic master has expounded his own thoughts on a variety of topics and introduced new and dynamic ideas, and scholars still hotly debate the characterization of the movement in general. Therefore, it would probably be an impossible task to appease everybody with this episode, but I will try to highlight some of the characteristic features of early Hasidism as represented by the Baal Shem Tov and his immediate successors. Born Probably in 1698, in the small backwater town of Okopi, in what was then Podolia, which is now uh, southwestern Ukraine, the Balshem Tov was not set up for success in the Jewish world. No great rabbis or scholar lived near him. As I mentioned, he wasn't that notable of a figure, and in fact, his early life is shrouded in relative mystery. What we do know is that sometime in the 1730s, the Besht embarked on a spiritual retreat in the Carpathian mountains, working as something called a line digger. And during this time, he is also said to have had some significant spiritual experiences. When he returned, he settled in the village of Medzibich, the village with which he would become most strongly associated. He seems to have been received quite well there, garnering a large following and even coming to be employed by the town as a kind of residential Kabbalist. The Kabbalah is a form of Jewish mysticism that emerged primarily in Iberia and in southern France in the Middle Ages, associated with literary works like the Zohar. Very famously, and by the time of the Baal Shem Tov and his life, Kabbalah was deeply intertwined with all of religious thought and practice, and had been so for a couple of centuries at that point. And indeed, this is very important to remember that the Baal Shem Tov and the Hasidic movement in general comes out of this Kabbalistic environment, and and very deeply steeped in the tradition of Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism. As the sort of in-house Kabbalist in Metzibich, the Baal Shem Tov had his own Minyan, a group of ten followers, which was required to hold a prayer service, and he was uh, paid a salary. It was from this position that he came to touch the hearts and souls of his disciples, garnering modest but enthusiastic support from devoted pupils, hailing from other parts of Podolia, Galatia, Russia, and other areas. This is significant, of course, but it wasn't until the generations following his death that the Besht's teachings would explode into the multinational movement that made it famous. As is sometimes the case with people like him, the Baal Shem Tov didn't produce many writings of his own. He transmitted orally his parables and homilies, both trademark forms of Hasidic interpretation. It was his disciples, perhaps most notably Rabbi Yaakov Yosef of Polnoi, uh, that gave us clear recordings of Rabbi Israel's teachings. Through these largely second-hand sources, we get a picture of the Besht's thought. While very innovative in certain areas, it is deeply steeped in a background of Lurianic Kabbalah, a form of Kabbalah developed by the thinker Yitzhak Luria in the 16th century. An understanding of that background and of that kind of Kabbalah is kind of necessary to grasp the complexities of the Baal Shem Tov's mystical ideas and endeavor. The Besht borrowed from Luria a dynamic understanding of the Sfirot, or emanations of the divine, as well as the concept of divine sparks hidden inside the shells or vessels. He greatly adapted Luria's understanding of the Tzinsum, or the divine contraction, that is when the Ein Sof, or the infinite so the Ein Sof is a common name for a god the absolute form of god in kabbalah and this n- n- word einsof means the infinite and in lurianic kabbalah there is this very famous idea of the tzinsum which means contraction that when when the Ein Sof, when god in his absolute form wants to create something he has to contract within himself, right? He has to create a space within his infinite nature in which the world is created, where he can sort of emanate the light that becomes eventually the created world. And different thinkers, including the Baal Shem Tov, have interpreted this idea of Tzimtzum differently, of course, but uh, still, this is a very central and important part of Lurianic Kabbalah that is also very... Uh, prominence in the Hasidic movements and their metaphysical ideas. He and his disciples also in some regard adopted the concept of Gilgul or reincarnation in his messianic ideas along with many other important Lurianic innovations. Two of the main themes associated with Beshtian and Hasidic theology is what we could call an immanentist conception of God as well as a kind of monistic cosmology. To the Baal Shem Tov, God was not this transcendent, otherworldly being that many other Jews conceived of. Instead, God, or more specifically the Shechina, what Professor Shaul Magid called the divine indwelling in nature, was present in the world. The Shechina is usually conceived of as the last of the ten Sefirot, as well as a kind of divine feminine principle, but what we see in early Hasidic literature is a sort of blurring of the harsh dividing lines between different Sefirot, on the one hand, and parts of the Godhead. Now, mapping out this cosmic realm, while hugely important to medieval Kabbalists and dogma to traditional Eastern European Jews of the 18th century, was not nearly as important to the Baal Shem Tov as experiencing the divine. For the Hasid, God is not apart or wholly transcendent from us, but with us. Quote, one must always think that the Creator fills the earth with His glory. One should consider that when he looks at physical things, it is as if he's beholding the Shechinah, which is within him. Here, in a sense, God is paradoxically both transcendent and immanent. His infinitude does not just mean he's way out there in the traditional transcendent conception. God is not only the whole of the universe, encapsulating it and all the other worlds out there, but here as well, within everything and within us. This personalized inner quality of God is perhaps, as we will see later, the most important notion that the Baal Shem Tov brings to the fore. Such an all encompassing idea of divine eminence is central to Hasidic theology. It has often been labeled panentheistic, a concept meaning all in God, so a sort of um, qualified version of pantheism, all is God. Um, Rabbi Schnur Zalman of Liadi, the founder of the Chabad movement, which is its own big sub-movement within Hasidism, takes this idea even a step further than the Besht in writing that quote, his very essence and being, may he be blessed, which is called by the name Ein Sof, completely fills the earth both in space and in time. Everything is filled with the light of the Ein Sof. Now in traditional Kabbalah, as I said, Ein Sof is usually characterized as a hidden unknowable god that is somehow apart and transcendent from our world and that actually contracts out um, or contracts uh, space outside of himself in this process known as Tinsum. This is one interpretation at least. Here, however, Rabbi Schneer Zalman is claiming that this unknowable god that we cannot perceive or even really talk about is here in our world. Instead of a physical symptom or contraction out of the world, what scholars call an ontological conception of the process, Schneer Zalman gives us an epistemological conception. His idea of symptom is, in the words of Alan Nadler, quote, a deliberate act of self-eclipse or concealment from human consciousness rather than an actual delimitation or contraction of the divine essence and spirit per se. As humans cannot fully grasp or fathom the glory and essence of the Ein Sof, so he delimited himself in stages, emanating the sfirot that become less and less hidden or hard to fathom each time. Dovber of Metzirich, also called the Magid of Metzirich, the great Magid or simply Magid, and probably the Besht's most important disciple, gives a similar idea of Tzimtzum as a process of Ein Sof lessening its complexity so that we can understand it. The laws of the Torah becomes a sort of simple guidebook to steer us in the right direction, since we can't actually grasp a God itself in the form of Ein Sof, in its absolute form, so to say. In any case, it is clear that instead of the harsh distinction between the profane world that we live in and the divine world of the Godhead, which arguably characterizes much of Lurianic Kabbalah otherwise, the Baal Shem Tov sees God as being here, present in our world, in a very profound and, and direct sense, and that this God can actually be reached, this imminent God can be reached through certain spiritual exercises. This is where perhaps the most important Hasidic concept comes into play, the idea of Devekut. The word is usually translated as cleaving to God, or union or communion with God, and it has a wide range of uses in the Hasidic and even just the Beshtian literature. For the Baal Shem Tov, Devekut is a deeply personal experience. One cleaves to God by moving inward and cultivating what the Besht calls inner awe through certain spiritual exercises and forms of prayer. The idea of cleaving to God, or Devakut, of ascending through the cosmos and interacting with higher Sfirot, is not unique to the Besht, of course. Neither is the idea of moving upwards through the four worlds, or Olamot. It is the way the Besht proposes one ascends through these worlds, who is allowed to do it, and the prominence, indeed primary place, that it takes in his general practice that is indeed revolutionary, and that did become a point of major contention for many Jews at the time. First, we have to consider that the best contemplative and prayer-based practices form the backbone of Devikot. Kut. However, he doesn't have a comprehensive handbook on the topic, but rather a series of shorter teachings that have been collected from throughout his life. A major part of the Baal Shem's spiritual practice is the process of making Yechudim, or unifications. There are generally three Yehudim, and with each one, the practitioner rises to a new olam, or world. Menachem Kalus outlines the altered state of consciousness one achieves with each Yehud. Quote, The first involves contemplative awareness of the integral relationship of everything that exists within manifest creation. All beings, human and animal, all life forms, including the ignoranic. Making a yichud means not only recognizing how all things are interconnected, but specifically including oneself within that web of manifest existence. From this gross level of integration, one proceeds to ascend to enter more deeply into contemplative awareness of nishamot. This level involves imaginal or angelic forces and powers, as well as other souls that may appear within one's own consciousness at a subtle level. One must then ascend to the level of recognition of Elohut as the causal itself. Here, one encounters and integrates the highest spheres or Svirot that are located at the very deepest levels of manifestations accessible to human consciousness, effectively integrated within divinity itself. Making Yehudim, however, is not simply a contemplative practice. The practitioner prays very slowly, paying attention to his breath while visualizing a, quote, flow of spiritual empowerment. It is said that the Besht prayed so slowly and for so long that his disciples often could not stand it and would walk out of the synagogue in exhaustion. Devikut, however, is not just meant for powerful, heavy spiritual experiences. One can, and indeed should, try to integrate or experience Devakut on a daily, everyday basis. Even throughout the day, while performing normal activities, one can contemplate the shchina and the Torah. Quote, even when talking to people, bear in mind that the 22 letters that constitute the means of common speech are ultimately the substratum of the Torah. The Baal Shem Tov also insists that even though one may be in a state of constricted consciousness, known as Katemut, uh, where one can't fully focus on the divine, one can still achieve devakut even in this state. He writes, quote, When one is in constricted consciousness, it should also be with adherence to the Shchina. So contemplating the Shchina or the Torah is also a kind of Devekut, although a smaller one compared to the very dramatic way of making Yechudim that I described just previously. Much like Abraham Abu Lafia, the Besht even speaks of reaching Devekut by focusing on Hebrew letters. One focuses on the core, the sort of inner meanings of these letters, contemplating them and understanding not just their external aspects, but their essence, the spherot with which they have connections and other lessons that can be drawn from them. What the Baal Shem Tov hoped to draw from these exercises was an authentic devotion to God and to the mitzvot, the commandments of God in the Torah or in the Jewish law. Indeed, the word Chasid means pious, and the Baal Shem Tov took his commitment to piety very seriously. Authentic prayer, true inner piety, and a yearning for profound mystical experience are paramount to chassidic practice. The best cared about the genuineness of prayer, not just going through the motions as such. If you truly have a fear of God, you can commune with God himself. You don't pray because it will help you in the community or because you think it will result in some sort of financial gain or whatever. You do it, quote, because of his omnipotent rule. The upshot of this commitment to genuineness in prayer was a lessening commitment to the traditional formalities of the prayer service. The chassidim introduced a new model of prayer centered on the shtibl, a small center of worship that featured lively prayer, uh, as well as very ecstatic uh, exclamations and experiences. The chassidim's focus on inner authenticity and spiritual ascendance, however, did run counter to the um, core of what we could call traditional quote-unquote Judaism at the time, uh, which was a strict studying of the Torah now that isn't to say that the Baal Shem Tov didn't consider studying the Torah to be a central part of Judaism of course he did and he integrated this into the what became the Hasidic movement as well, of course, but it doesn't have, you could say, the same primacy. It's not as emphasized in the Hasidic movement as it was for some other Jews at the time. And it wasn't just the Baal Shem Tov's emphasis on Devekut rather than intense study that angered many other Jewish authorities, but also his ideas about who could achieve this. Now, traditionally, the Kabbalah and uh, mystical experiences were kind of reserved for the very elite intelligentsia or the elite scholars. There, uh, it is said that traditionally, to study the Kabbalah, you had to be 40 years old, you had to be married and have children, you had to know the entire Torah and Talmud. There were many uh, restrictions on who could even begin to study the Kabbalah. Um, and so the Bal Shem Tov's idea is that anyone can reach Devekut, in other words, anyone can reach this experience of cleaving or uniting with God. That was quite a new idea at this time. This democratization of Kabbalistic practice was quite shocking, of course, and could in a way disrupt the entire social structure of Judaism as such at the time. We must be clear, however, that the Bal Shem Tov certainly did not espouse a total spiritual egalitarianism. Far from it, actually. He claimed to be on a higher spiritual plane and therefore uniquely capable of deep mystical experience. This idea continued in the generation following the Besht's death through the idea of the tzaddik, or the righteous one. These tzaddikim were seen as being more spiritually evolved and served as leaders. Thus an alternate power structure kind of emerged based not on intelligence and devotion to study, but on spirits and charisma. This too threatened the traditional community and its social structure. During the life of the Baal Shem Tov himself, however, this was not that much of a threat to the Jewish community as such, since the Hasidic movement at this time was quite a small uh, affair, it garnered followers here and there, but did not really have any kind of central authority other than the Baal Shem Tov himself. The Baal Shem Tov died in 1760, and it was only in the generations following his death that the Hasidic movement really started to gain some ground. The Baal Shem Tov's closest disciples, with significant figures like Yaakov Yosef of Polnoy, Dovber the Maggid of Meserich, and Pinchas Shapiro of Cortez, ushered the new Hasidic movement into a new era and helped it spread across Eastern Europe. In fact, the movement exploded across Europe, capturing the hearts and minds of many, especially younger Jews. Despite its many radical innovations, Hasidism was sort of just accepted, or at least tolerated in most places, but in Lithuania, the story was very different. Some of the Jewish authorities in Lithuania, specifically a man named Elijah ben Solomon Zalman, better known as the Vilna Gaon, launched a vicious multi-year attack against the Hasidim. McGowan wrote a series of polemics throughout the latter part of the 18th century directed against the encroaching Hasidim. In one, he writes, quote, The stubborn hearts insist on rejecting good and choosing evil, transgressing the Torah and changing its laws. In the Torah of Moses, they have established a new covenant, working out their evil schemes with the masses in the house of the Lord, interpreting the Torah falsely while claiming that their way is precious in the eyes of God. They call themselves Hasidim. That is an abomination. How they have deceived this generation, uttering these words on high These are thy gods, O Israel, every stick and stone. Clearly, there's a lot of exaggeration here. He's writing polemically. He is clearly, as I usually say in these episodes, he's not a fan of the Hasidim, and thus he writes these kinds of things. As we've seen, the Hasidim did not deny the importance of the Torah, they held the Torah as a very central parts of religious practice just like every other jew but it shows that there was some kind of tension especially in lithuania apparently about the hasidic movement there was a fear that the hasidim were secret practitioners of sebationism a 17th century jewish messianic movement centered on the figure of shabtai tzvi that led many jewish to break certain laws of the torah in hopes of redemption if you don't know about shabtai tzvi uh, he was a jewish figure who claimed to be the messiah um, in the 17th century and actually managed to get probably the majority of jews around the world to believe that he was indeed the messiah and start this massive movement until suddenly one day he converts to islam which completely was a bombshell in the entire community and when we look at the hasidic movement and its appearance in europe We also have to see it in the light of the aftermath of this massive event. This was a traumatic event for the Jewish world at the time, and the Hasidic movement kind of emerges as a, not necessarily as a response to it, but definitely as a result uh, partly of the environment that that trauma kind of created. You would think that these worries from some of the other Jewish authorities came from perhaps the Chassidim's use of Lurianic Kabbalistic ideas, but indeed, when we look at, for example, the Gaon's who wrote the polemical quote that I just read to you, he was also actually a devoted Kabbalist. And when we look deeper, we can see that the theological differences between the Chassidim and its enemies, so to say, weren't really that major at all. The situation was a lot more complex than that. Alan Nadler writes that, quote, There was virtually no substantive theological difference between Hasidim and mithnagdim in their respective theoretical understandings of the nature of divine eminence. Where they did differ was on the place and application of this belief in religious life and the propriety of propagating it to the Jewish masses. Thus, it was the practice, the prayers, and the social organization that angered some Jewish authorities, not theological differences per se. The tensions got so bad that in 1771, when an epidemic hit Vilna, causing the deaths of many of its Jewish citizens, there were riots against the Hasidim. They were blamed for this epidemic, some of them were flogged and forced out of town. Despite the Gaon's best efforts, however, the Hasidic movement spread far and wide. New Hasidic masters developed their own theologies and courts, to which wide-eyed students would flock for advice and wisdom. Over the next few generations, these courts became true destinations with communities forming around them and their associated Rebbes or Rabbis. They eventually came to follow a dynastic model, whereby a close relative of the Rebbe would take over upon the former's death. This system is largely in place today, even though many Hasidim have moved to America or Israel. So what was so appealing about the Hasidic movement to so many people around the world? This is probably, of course, a complex question to answer but one could guess that at least one aspect of its popularity stemmed from the fact that it gave a more personal relationship to god and one's religious practice as well as a at least relatively egalitarian attitude where everyone was able to reach the most deepest mystical experiences and intimacy with god that did away with some of the more hierarchical uh, structures that only allowed certain elite people to have access to the Kabbalah and to the what some conceive of as the deeper aspects of the religion. This instead allowed for a wider uh, group of people to be invited uh, to the secrets, so to say, of of of, uh, of, of, uh, of uh, both Jewish mysticism and and Hasidism uh, in general or in particular, I should say. One of the biggest contributions of this movement are the twin ideas of Ain and Yesh, often translated as nothingness and suchness. Ain is very similar to Ain Sof, and in fact, Ain and Ain are essentially the same word. As Ein sof is an idea born out of a negative theology, in other words, explaining what God is through negations. One can't say anything about what God is in a in positive sense. One can only describe God but by what he isn't. That is that's what apophatic or what negative theology means. Ain could be described as a notion born from negative ontology. It is a sort of nothingness that is necessary for yesh or creation to occur. It pervades and links everything. In a way, it is sort of like dark matter, a mysterious stand-in for what we can't comprehend about the universe. Ain is also, however, a goal. It is self-annihilation. To reach Ain is, in the Maggid's formulation, a goal of Devekut. James Jacobson Meisels writes that, quote, One who has achieved Ain has achieved equanimity, an indifference to the vagaries of life and an absence of self-concern. Achieving Ain means realizing both the unity and equivalence of everything in the world, as well as its essential non-value. As the Maggid himself teaches, quote, A person must consider himself nothing, they must abandon themselves and forget their suffering in order to come to the world of thought where everything is equivalent. This is not the case when he is cleaving to the reality of this world. End quote in both cases. Some, including the important scholar Rivka Schatz Uffenheimer, have used this concept to claim that Hasidism is at its core a quietist movement, focused primarily on contemplation. The great scholar of Jewish mysticism, Gershom Scholem, went in a different direction, claiming that Hasidism is essentially world-denying, viewing our life in a rather pessimistic light. But many scholars today have pushed back against these conceptions, including James Jacobson and Moshe Edel, claiming that Hasidism and its specific spiritual practices are in fact activist and fundamentally world-affirming. In this model, Hasidism calls upon its adherents to find deeper connections to the world and other people, and thereby also finding a deeper connection with God. In this episode, we have only discussed the earliest developments and origins of the Hasidic movements, some of its basic theological ideas and practices. Today, the Hasidic movement is a very significant force in the Jewish world. They exist in many parts around the globe, very famously, for example, in Israel, of course, but also in New York. The Hasidic movements are often strongly associated with the so-called ultra-Orthodox, or more properly called the Haredim, uh, which are very strictly observant Jews, famous for some other... uh, tire for example and these two terms the chassidi or chassidim and the Haridim, are sometimes synonymous even though they of course aren't synonymous completely but this shows you that the um, the fact that the Hasidic movement or Hasidism is a deeply mystical tradition. It is steeped in Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah, and yet it is very strict for the most part in its conception and practice of Jewish law and interpretation of the Torah, for example. It's another good example to show that this very modern New Age-y kind of interpretation that mysticism is always some kind of liberal kind of hippie thing as opposed to strict religion when in fact For most of history, that's basically the opposite of the truth, that mystics are sometimes uh, more often some of the most strict people in terms of religious practice, and in this case law, for example. We see this in many other religions like Islam and and Christianity too. With that said, there's of course a lot of nuance and diversity here as well, but I think that's a, a good point to keep in mind at the very least. In any case, if you want to understand Judaism today, you cannot do so fully without also knowing about the Hasidic movement, and in this episode I have attempted to give you at least a simple overview of the earliest developments and ideas of this very interesting uh, Jewish tradition. It stands as one of the most significant and important uh, aspects of Judaism in the world today, and is, of course, as I hope you will agree at this point, is very fascinating and intriguing on various different levels too. Thank you to Seth Weprin for writing this episode and a special shout out as always to all of my patrons who keep this channel going and I will see you next time.